Section 40 of Rudder Grange. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rudder Grange by Frank R. Stockton. Chapter 20. The Other Baby at Rudder Grange. Part 2. Euphemia scolded and scolded, and said she would put on her hat and go for the mother. But I told her the mother was dead, and that seemed to be an obstacle. She took a great deal of care of the child, for she said she would not see an innocent creature neglected, even if it was an incipient hod-carrier, but she did not relax in the least in her attention to Pomona's baby. The next day was about the same, in regard to infantile incident, but on the day after I began to tire of my new charge, and Pat, on his side, seemed to be tired of me, for he turned from me when I went to take him up, while he would hold out his hands to Euphemia, and grin delightedly when she took him. That morning I drove to the village and spent an hour or two there. On my return I found Euphemia sitting in our room with little Pat on her lap. I was astonished at the change in the young rascal. He was dressed from head to foot in a suit of clothes belonging to Pomona's baby. The glowing fuzz on his head was brushed and made as smooth as possible, while his little muslin sleeves were tied up with blue ribbon. I stood speechless at the sight. "'Doesn't he look nice?' said Euphemia, standing him up on her knees. "'It shows what good clothes will do. I'm glad I helped Pomona make up so many. He's getting ever so fond of me, zee itsy patsy watsy. See how strong he is. He can almost stand on his legs. Look how he laughs. He's just as cunning as he could be. And, oh, I was going to speak about that box. I wouldn't have him sleep in that old packing-box. There are little wicker cradles at the store. I saw them last week. They don't cost much, and you could bring one up in the carriage. There's the other baby crying, and I don't know where Pomona is. Just you mind him a minute, please, and out she ran. I looked out of the window. The horse still stood, harnessed to the carriage, as I had left him. I saw Pat's old shawl lying in a corner. I seized it, and rolling him in it, new clothes and all, I hurried downstairs, climbed into the carriage, hastily disposed Pat in my lap, and turned the horse. The demeanor of the youngster was very different from what it was when I first took him in my lap to drive away with him. There was no confident twinkle in his eye, no contented munching of his little fists. He gazed up at me with wild alarm, and as I drove out of the gate he burst forth into such a yell that Lord Edward came bounding around the house to see what was the matter. Euphemia suddenly appeared at an upper window and called out to me, but I did not hear what she said. I whipped up the horse, and we sped along to New Dublin. Pat soon stopped crying, but he looked at me with a tear-stained and reproachful visage. The good woman of the settlement were surprised to see little Pat return so soon. "'And wasn't he good?' said Mrs. Hogan, as she took him from my hands. "'Oh, yes,' I said. "'He was as good as he could be, but I have no further need of him.' I might have been called upon to explain this statement had not the whole party of women who stood around burst into wild expressions of delight at Pat's beautiful clothes. "'Oh, just look at em cried Mrs. Duffy, "'and see them little petticoats trimmed with lace. "'Oh, and it was good of you, sir, to give him all them, "'and pay the five dollars, too.' "'And I'm glad he's back,' said the fostering aunt, "'for I was a-comin' over to tell you "'that I've been hearing from my old Pat, his dad, "'and he's a-comin' back from the mines, "'and I don't know what he'd a-said "'if he'd found his little Pat was rented. "'But if you ever want to bore him for a while, "'after all, Pat's gone back.' "'You can have him rent-free, and it's much obliged I am to you, sir, for dressing him so fine.' I made no encouraging remarks as to future transactions in this line, and drove slowly home. Euphemia met me at the door. 
She had Pomona's baby in her arms. We walked together into the parlor. "'And so you have given up the little fellow that you were going to do so much for?' she said. "'Yes, I have given him up,' I answered. "'It must have been a dreadful trial to you,' she continued. "'Oh, dreadful,' I replied. "'I suppose you thought he would take up so much of your time and thoughts that we couldn't be to each other what we used to be, didn't you?' she said. "'Not exactly,' I replied. "'I only thought that things promised to be twice as bad as they were before.' She made no answer to this, but going to the back door of the parlor she opened it and called Pomona. When that young woman appeared, Euphemia stepped toward her and said, "'Here, Pomona, take your baby.' They were simple words, but they were spoken in such a way that they meant a good deal. Pomona knew what they meant. Her eyes sparkled, and as she went out I saw her hug her child to her breast and cover it with kisses, and then through the window I could see her running to the barn and Jonas.' "'Now, then,' said Euphemia, closing the door and coming toward me, with one of her old smiles and not a trace of preoccupation about her, "'I suppose you expect me to devote myself to you.' I did expect it, and I was not mistaken. Since these events a third baby has come to Rudder Grange. It is not Pomona's, nor was it brought from New Dublin. It is named after a little one who died very young, before this story was begun— and the strangest thing about it is that never, for a moment, does it seem to come between Euphemia and myself. End of section 40 End of Rudder Grange by Frank R. Stockton Recorded by Sibella Denton in Carrollton, Georgia, in October 2007